two weeks ago, Tammy and I were up in North Dakota. Uh, many of you would be aware that Tammy's brother John passed away recently. And uh, so a couple weeks ago was the memorial. He lived in Minot, North Dakota. I had no idea where that was, except that it was very, very far away. And it is very, very cold in Minot, North Dakota. We went there, and um, I have to say, I was, so, I was so affected by that service as people stood up, and we began to get a picture of John's life. Now, some of you know John and Tiffany. Years ago, they were part of the church here. John led ministries here at the church and uh, since moved on and, and so forth. So some of you would be uh, familiar with him. But John has an interesting story, and there were many times over the years that we would kind of scratch our head, feel a little bad for John because he had a lot of setbacks and a lot of hardships in his life. And there were times we just couldn't help think, Lord, could you give the guy a break? You know, could something go well? At one point, he was doing real well vocationally. He worked for Countrywide in the mortgage industry. As soon as I say that name, you know exactly what happened. The mortgage industry blew up, and John lost a lot of savings, retirement, and, and not to mention his job. They went on a church planting venture to Brazil, which didn't work out. They came back. They settled in Spokane, Washington, had a hard time finding another vocation. And eventually, there was work in North Dakota in the oil fields, and that's where John went. Spent many months of his life commuting states, commuting states from Idaho to North Dakota in order to work and provide for his family. Like I said, there were many times it was like, oh, Lord. Could you give him a break? Could, could something really go well in his life? And then we showed up at this memorial service a couple weeks ago. And the testimonies started to happen about John's life. And a picture was beginning to be painted about a man who lived his life so central on the gospel, who was constantly displaying a trust in God's sovereignty, who was constantly telling everybody in his life, you need to trust in God. You need to trust in God's sovereignty. His wife, children, all stood up. Everybody's testimony was beyond a shadow of a doubt. Everyone knew that John loved them. Friend after friend stood up to say, I don't know what John thought of me, but I thought of John as my best friend. He discipled people. We heard stories about how generous he was, oftentimes in secret, helping people in need, giving much away when he had plenty of bills himself to pay for. By the time this service was over, I was, and I think many in the room were a bit overwhelmed. And I walked out of that room and I said, now that was a life well lived. John got it. He got it right. We would have looked at his life and wondered and questioned, wondered the level of success that he experienced 
in his life. And yet, when it was all said and done, when the scrolls were opened and the testimonies came through and we got an actual divine perspective on this man's life, I thought, now that's how to do it. That's how to live your life for the glory of God. That's how to trust the Lord. Friends, one of the most distinguishing marks of a Christian, of a disciple of Jesus, is that they live in a confident trust in God's word and a confident trust in the power of God. Christians are not always the people where everything goes well, where the circumstances always line up and life always appears to everyone around as a success. And yet the distinguishing mark of a believer in Christ is that regardless of the circumstances, there's an underlying confidence in the word of God and in the power of God. John kept the faith. I'm not wishing on any of you a hard life, difficult circumstances, financial setbacks, cancer, wife with cancer. Tiffany, by God's grace, survived cancer. Eventually, John got sick, went into the hospital, was in for some weeks, and then went home to be with the Lord. It's not the circumstances. That's not the point I'm trying to make. But what I walked away with was a man who trusted the Lord. And he left a testimony that affected my heart. I said, now, we all walked out of there saying, I want to be more like John. That's how I want to live my life. The mark of every Christian is that we have a confidence in the word of God and a confidence in the power of God. But life is filled with many things that oppose those things. Life is filled with opposition. Life is filled with temptations that cause it to be a struggle and a challenge in order to keep the faith, in order to trust in God. Our passage this afternoon is going to speak into that. We're in Mark chapter 12. If you have a Bible, would like to turn there. Mark chapter 12, I'd like to read a section beginning in verse 18. We'll read 18 through 27. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took the wife and when he died left no offspring. And the second took her and died leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all the woman also died. In the resurrection when they rise again whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. 
For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong. The word of God and the power of God give us hope for eternal life. The word of God, the power of God, give us hope for eternal life, resurrection life. I want to break down the text in a few sections as we sort of build this case, the opposition to Jesus. Secondly, he gives us some helpful instruction about marriage. And then thirdly, the word and the power of God that we're called to trust in. Let's start off with the opposition. Mark introduces us to several groups that oppose Jesus. This group comes, shows up, opposing Jesus. Last week, Foster brought the word, excellent word, well done, and introduced us to two of these groups, groups of people that oppose Jesus, the Pharisees. Let me summarize. This was a group known for how they extrapolated God's laws down to the details. How they live strict lives in obedience down to the smallest of the details in life. But the heart behind this was that of earning and deserving grace from God. But grace cannot be earned, only given. This desire to earn, this propensity to earn, caused in their hearts a kind of self-righteousness so that they did not only see themselves as deserving or earning grace from God, they had a tendency to think they earned it and deserved it just a little bit better than you did. They were one step up. They kept the rules and then they would look at others and say, I'm keeping the rules a little bit better than you are. The Pharisees, I can earn. I can add to. I can contribute. As Sinclair Ferguson would say, I can smuggle into God's grace something of my own works. That gives us a bit of the heart of the Pharisee. Then Foster introduces us to the Herodians. I would characterize the Herodians like this. Let's play along so we get along. Let's play along with what's going on here so that we can get along. This was a group known for their political views and uh, accepting this Roman uh, yoke that they were living under. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, he has a Mr. By-ends. Mr. By-ends is the man here that we're talking about. By-ends is not a very common word that we tend to use. The name is a bit outdated, but it, it refers to someone who always acts out of self-interest. In Bunyan, his family is Lord Turnabout, Lord Time Server, Lord Fair Speech, Mr. Smooth Man, and Mr. Facing Both Ways, Mr. Anything, and Mr. Two-Tongued. He and his wife would together say, "'Tis true, we somewhat differ in religion from those of the stricter sort, yet but in two small points. First, we never strive against wind and tide. Secondly, we're always most zealous when religion goes in his silver slippers, we love much to walk with him in the street if the sun shines and the people applaud him. We play along, so we get along. 
This afternoon, we're introduced to a third group, the Sadducees. The Sadducees, this was a group of academic elites in the Jewish world. They were wealthy, they were influential, they had several seats on the governing Sanhedrin, which was kind of a Jewish tribunal, kind of a, a, a international, not international, national within the Jewish community court system for things that were not falling into the Roman jurisdiction. They would have their own internal court system, the Sanhedrin, and the Sadducees would have several seats on this tribunal. They did not believe in the resurrection. That's what the New Testament tells us. The Sadducees, I would characterize as this life is all there is kind of people. This life is all there is. You did not exist before you were born. You exist while you're alive. When you're dead, you're dead. It's over. You are no more. This life is it. There is no resurrection. There is no afterlife. There's nothing beyond this. You have this life to live. That's all you have. Don't be deluded. Don't be deceived in thinking that there's a better life hereafter, that there's any kind of ever after. It's just this. Well, friends, these groups, they did not just appear out of nowhere. They, they came into being because these are things that reside in the hearts of men and women. These kind of propensities sort of characterize aspects of remaining indwelling sin in our hearts. They, they pull on us. And so what I would like to suggest is while there are other people that fall into these categories, we should first recognize there's a little Pharisee lurking all around in your soul as well. There's a little Herodian lurking around in your soul. There's a little Sadducee lurking around in your soul. These kinds of characteristics, they're in us as well as around us. We are called to read these about these groups and recognize, oh, that's in my heart as well. Sometimes I think I can add to what Christ has done. Sometimes I think, Lord, I want to contribute something of my own to the grace in my life. Let me do at least a little part of this. Let me compromise so we can get along. Let me push God's standards off to the side so we can get along with others. And this afternoon, this life is all there is. Oh, does not that get a little close to home? How often, how often do we struggle with this idea that if things don't work out well for me now, in the here and now, if it's not going to play out well for me in this life, I'm not sure I want to play this game. I'm not sure I want to do this Christian thing. If you're going to tell me what, that it's all for the next life? It's a long ways away in our thinking that maybe we don't even believe it. Maybe we smile and nod. Oh, yes, there's heaven. Oh, yes, there's reward. Oh, yes, there's an eternal life with God. But for all practical purposes, what I really think about, what I really want, is I want it now. I want it all now. I want to know that right now is going to work out. I don't want to be distracted. There's a little Sadducee at work 
in each of our hearts. Each of these groups are opposed to Christ. That is something that you and I need to recognize. When we recognize this heart within us, whether it's Pharisee, Herodian, Sadducee, Zealot, Essene, we could list them all off. We have to recognize. Do you see how Mark portrays each one of these groups? They come up to Jesus to oppose him. And when these ideologies lurk within our own hearts, they come up within our hearts to oppose the gospel of Christ. They work against the grace of God in our lives. So the focus this afternoon is on this, this life is all there is group. And we can guard our hearts from being prone to falling into that same kind of denial of the resurrection. How many of you as Christians would say, I deny that there's a resurrection. Hardly a one would admit to that. And yet how often can you and I find ourselves so fixated on it all needs to happen in this life. Never mind the next one. From here, we move into the text, and point number two is this marriage issue. Here's the conundrum. Here's the scenario that the Sadducees come to Jesus, a kind of absurd scenario, hoping to expose the foolishness of thinking that there's eternity, that there's an afterlife, that there's a resurrection, that there's a heaven, that there's anything spiritual going to go take place after we finish our time on the earth. So they tell the story about this poor woman who has seven husbands and no children. When most women would want one husband and seven children, she ends up with seven husbands and no children. And then the question, the punchline, so in heaven, Jesus, whose wife will she be? There was an Old Testament law practice that uh, James Edwards lays, describes it like this, whereby a man was obligated to marry a childless widow of his brother in order to preserve the name and memory of his deceased brother and to ensure the establishment of his deceased brother's property inheritance within the family line. We see this show up in different stories in the Old Testament. Tamar in Genesis 38, this law was kind of brought into being and you saw the story play out. Ruth was another story where this law was brought up and you see this idea. A man marries a wife, he dies, he has no children. His brother is now under legal obligation to marry his widow. And when he does, they're to have children, and those children are not his, but his dead brothers. So you see the, the logic of the, of the Sadducees here, and it is playing into their theory that there is no resurrection. It's all about this life. And so when you die, what we need to do is we need to make sure we preserve your name, your legacy, your property, because that's how you live on. There is no resurrection, but there is your legacy, your progeny, so children to bear your name. The story seems a bit far-fetched. It seems like a kind of teasing conundrum. I mean, really? Seven? 
Seven guys died? I mean, what is this? I married an axe murderer. What's this woman doing to these seven guys that they're all dying on her? It's kind of a debating ploy that they use. They're trying to catch Jesus in something. They're trying to corner him, maybe embarrass him. Say, look, you talk about the resurrection. You talk about the next life. Let me tell you a story and ask you a simple question. Whose wife will she be? What's distinctive with the Sadducees is they had a policy about the Scripture. Only the first five books of Moses, that was their Bible. So all what you and I recognize as our Old Testament, the Sadducees would ignore everything except what's known as the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. And apparently, as they studied those five books, they did not come up with a good theology of resurrection. And so they were convinced there was no resurrection. Jesus responds, which surprises me. It's interesting to look at how Jesus responds to questions and people that oppose him. It's kind of a, a, a wide variety. You know, sometimes Jesus answers questions. Sometimes he refuses to answer questions. Sometimes he twists and turns the things around. He says, never mind what you're talking about. I want to talk about this. Jesus seems to handle people differently in different situations. And here, with this kind of uh, absurd scenario, I would have thought that Jesus would have just ignored them. Uh, you know, I'm not even going to bother with your game here. But yet, he speaks into it. Jesus used the opportunity to give us some teaching about marriage and about heaven. He appears to be saying that once we leave this present life, marriage is no longer relevant. Now, the phrase in the text that we read, marrying and given in marriage, it, it's possible that that phrase, marrying and given in marriage, is only referring to the process of getting married, but not the status of being married. So slight possibility that what Jesus is saying is like, okay, look, if you're not married when you go to heaven, you can't get married when you get there. But if you are married before you get there, you'll stay married when you're there. Possible. Highly unlikely. Doesn't seem true. Doesn't seem plausible. And in, in, in fact, it just almost legitimizes the question because then you have uh, widows, widowers that remarried, then now all of a sudden the scenario becomes true if the marriage does carry forward. It seems more plausible, and it would be my opinion, that the institution of marriage that God gave to us is for this life and not the next. Paul lays out something about marriage. A woman is bound to her husband in a marriage covenant until he dies, until one of them dies. We say, till death do us part. In other words, when there's a death of either spouse in a marriage, the, cover, the covenant ends at that point. Death stops the covenant of marriage. This is the first in a list of reasons and applications as I was listing off here why I believe this, why I think this is what the Bible teaches. When Jesus says marrying nor given in marriage, I think he's saying that the institution of marriage is, is not in play once we're all in that state with the Lord. He used the phrase that we will be like the angels. 
certainly in some respect, not in every respect, but he's talking about a marriage union being unnecessary for angels. So New Testament teaching on marriage, I believe, is till death do us part. And when a death takes place, the covenant ends. Secondly, procreation is needed in this life, not in the next. In this life, we all die. It's good that you're having babies. It's good that we have children. Everybody dies. We are called to this. This is a blessing. This is part of our uh, calling under Adam to replenish the earth. This is a good thing. In the next life, nobody dies. We all live forever. No need there for procreation. No marriage in the next life. Marriage in this life. I believe helps us avoid distortions about marriage in this life. Here at Sovereign Grace Church, we say we are complementarian. What that means is what we believe about marriage is that a husband and wife are before God equal in value, equal in status, but assigned by God distinct roles in this partnership we know as marriage. Husband as the leader, wife as the helper, this partnership is meant to reflect something of the Trinity, of the Godhead. It is created to display something. We value this. We think God created this for a reason. Regardless of how many distortions there may or may not have been about this, we hold to this because we believe this is what the Bible teaches and we strive to display it to the glory of God in a way where the leader is a loving, sacrificial leader in his home. The wife is a respectful husband, honoring partner, helper in this union we call marriage. Knowing from this text that both husband and wife will one day be like the angels elevates both and encourages a God-honoring respect toward one another. It increases our sense of value. While we have some distinction in roles, this emphasizes the idea that Tammy, I already think, is like an angel, but she's really going to be like an angel. That should give me pause. That should give me perspective. That should illuminate something about how I relate to her, how I acknowledge her as a gift from God to me, and what God is doing in her and in me, and what he's bringing us to. Fourthly, for marriage to be for this life and not the next encourages and strengthens our attention on one of the highest purposes of marriage. While marriage is for our pleasure, for our companionship, for procreation, marriage also has one very high purpose. The institution of marriage that God has given to us is meant to be a witness to the world of his own love for his people, that the church 
The people who are Christians, the people who know the Lord, are referred to as the bride of Christ. And God has instituted this thing we know as marriage so that that kind of a union can be a display for the world to see and through that, by God's grace, recognize, oh, that's how God loves his people. That's how God treats his people, like a cherished bride. In our marriages, we're called to display a spiritual reality, this spiritual reality of Christ's love for his church. So all this together leads me to the conclusion that marriage is for this life. Its purposes are fulfilled in this life and suspended in the next. Jesus didn't let this opportunity go by without speaking into this. I think marriage is high on Jesus' priority list. And while it seemed like a bizarre scenario that was being posed by the Sadducees, I think Jesus wanted to step into it and say, now that you brought up marriage, let me teach you something about it because it's important. Third point, the real error that we're looking at here. Uh, I, I love Jesus Frankness, boldness, candor. Guys, you don't know the Bible. You don't know your Bible. Now, you have to understand, um, this, this, this would be like gathering together a small group of seminary presidents. I mean, these were like academic elites. These were the guys at the top of the academic world at that time. And they're kind of as a group, and Jesus tells them, Guys, you don't know your Bibles. You have to comprehend. They must have been a little put off by this comment. You don't know the Scripture. This is your problem, guys. Hey, let me explain to you why you're wrong, why you don't have good understanding here. You, you just simply don't know your Bible. But, friends, the Bible was their business. They earned their living from knowing the Bible. They were known. Their reputation was because they knew the Bible. And Jesus says, you don't understand the scriptures. And Jesus takes them to the scripture. Now, this is interesting. Talk about the resurrection and for Jesus to go to the Pentateuch about this. There's a couple verses in the Old Testament that give fairly explicit resurrection doctrine to us. And yet Jesus goes into the Pentateuch, the, the one portion category of the old testament that these guys adhere to acknowledge as god words and he takes him to moses at the bush where god said i'm the god of abraham the god of isaac the god of jacob and then explains that god is not the god of the dead but of the living I don't know about you, when I first read that, I thought, no, Jesus, that's a little bit of an exegetical stretch, if you ask me. Uh, you kind of wonder how Jesus is really handling his Bible there, because what a verb tense now is creating a doctrine of the resurrection. This seems a, a little bit of a jump. I would not have read that statement and thought, ah, there it is. We all live forever. There, there's the doctrine of the resurrection. It, it does not really come across that way, it does seem like a bit of a stretch. The Sadducees would have read this passage, like many of us would have read this passage, 
easily to mean that all the patriarch's progeny lives on just like this example of the marriage. Brother, take the wife, have children. No children, next brother, next, next, next. Have some children so that brother number one, the eldest brother, will have his name remain on the earth through his children and through his children's children. I would have read the Bush account the same way. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob live on. as the people of Israel. They had sons. They had sons who had sons, and on and on, and so they live on. Yet Jesus goes here and claims that what God said to Moses here is proof that his people are and will be resurrected. He is saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are currently alive. They're alive. They're not dead. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is a God of the present living. Therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in fact alive. The point here, what seems to be emphasized by Jesus is that God is saying that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And when God promised to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you a place, I'm going to give you a home, I'm going to give you a people, we read the story of Abraham, and Abraham finished his life with those promises unfulfilled. What God is saying that he's the God of the living, Abraham is still alive. He's saying, look, when God makes a promise, he keeps it. Do you remember this verse in Hebrews eleven thirty nine? 39? It says, and all these, listen off these all hall of faith people of the Old Testament, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. All these people did not receive everything that was promised. What's the conclusion from that? God's word is not reliable. God makes promises he doesn't keep. Is that possible? Is that the conclusion? No. The point is, there's a resurrection. There's a next life. There's plenty of time for the fulfillment of all these promises. And if God made a promise, God will fulfill his word. The promise will come to be. The promise to Abraham to give him a place, to give him an inheritance, was not something that Abraham received, but then it's explained in Hebrews 11.10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, Abraham was looking to the next life for the fulfillment of the promises of God in his life. That's what the word of God says. This is hard. This ruffles the Sadducee in our hearts, which says this life is all there is. And I want what I want in this life. And I don't want to talk about the next life because I need it 
now because this is all there is. This life is all we get. And the Bible teaches us something different. There are false teachers out there that will tell you what you want to hear about this, that God will give it to you in this life. I could give you their names. You could tune into them on YouTube. You could go to their churches, and they would be glad to make you feel very good and assure you that everything God has for you, he will give to you in this life. And you'll walk out of those meetings, meeting after meeting, feeling really pumped up, really encouraged, and really satisfied until you keep going back and you keep going back and then all of a sudden you begin to realize when when is it going to come well friends there are so many blessings of god in this life i am not trying to project look we get miserable lives here and then a little bit of happiness in heaven it is not not the point there is so much goodness of the grace of god so much blessing in this life but as paul said friends if all we're doing is looking for what we get in this life what did he say we would be of most men most pitied you should pity us if that's the extent of our hope if all we get is what we get in this life and and it's not to say that this life is so bad but what paul is thinking about he's thinking about the glories of the blessings He's thinking about the, the magnitude of the reward. He's thinking about the presence of God. He's thinking about streets of gold. He's talking about glories of God that are like, uh, he saw it and he said, I can't even talk to you about it. It's so beyond. That's what Paul is thinking about. The glories of the future so much exceed any glories of this life. Friends, I feel my burden as a pastor is to prepare you for heaven. The Sadducee will tell you, if you're too heavenly minded, you'll be no earthly good. And Jesus would say, let me explain to you why you're wrong. You don't know your Bible and you don't know the power of God. So stop saying this nonsense that this life is all there is. In reality, it's only when you recognize how magnificent the next life is that you can begin to live this life and finish it well so that the people at your funeral will line up one after another and everybody will walk out of that room and say, now that was a life well lived. It was a life well lived because you had your sights on the next one, not on this one. Sadducees oppose the gospel, oppose Jesus, oppose the good news. You don't know the word of God. You don't know the power of God. Hebrews 11, again, you remember when Abraham offered up his son. His son was the promise. <laughs> he had the boy. It was the promise. That was, there was the fulfillment right there. And then God told him, sacrifice him. 
And Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. You hear it? There's the, his progeny. Promise is going to come through your son. Didn't have a son. Your brother marries your wife. Same thing. Same concept. Keep the name going. Keep the progeny going. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him Abraham knew the word of God, the promise of God, and Abraham knew the power of God. Even if I do sacrifice my son, I know the power of God. Even God can raise him from the dead. Isn't this our gospel? Isn't this our good news? That God did, in fact, offer up his son in our place? Was it not the darkest hour in human history, in redemptive history, when Christ breathed his last, gave up his spirit on the cross? All seemed lost. All seemed without hope. Everything appeared to be for nothing. But God offered him up. Why? Because God knew the power to raise him from the dead, which, in fact, he did. Oh, Sadducee, there is a resurrection. Oh, there is a resurrection. And it is a doctrine that will change your life and mine. Worship team, you can come on up and I'll close. Friends, Simple question, do you trust the Lord? Do you trust God? I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't, I don't doubt if we were to sit and talk, I'd love to sit at the coffee shop with you and tell me what's going on in your life, and I don't doubt I would hear some, some real stories of some challenges, some hardships, some obstacles in your life. Friend, are you trusting God? Do you know what he's promised? And do you know his power? Because while your trials may be difficult, your trials may be hard, the Lord knows, the Lord sees, and the Lord speaks a word of promise to you in the gospel. And in that word and with that word, the power of God is real. Distinguishing mark of a Christian an unusual confidence in the word of God, an unusual confidence in the power of God produces hope in the resurrection. I hope every one of your prayers get answered in this life. I hope tomorrow's a better day than today was. I hope your future is glorious. But listen, friend, we don't get to choose our sorrows. We don't get to choose our setbacks. We don't get to choose our trials. I don't know what your tomorrow is going to be. I know what your eternity can be filled with glory.
filled with hope, filled with joy, filled with laughter. No more tears. Glorious time with the Lord. That's what the gospel brings us into. Let's stand together.